0: We hope you enjoy the show, as together we hear how they are making their world better. The Great Resignation, it's a very real thing, and it's impacting all of us. All of the nonprofits that I've talked to are feeling the pressure of staying competitive to keep their people. And some are also scrambling to adjust to staff who are leaving for better-paying jobs. And as we've been facing this new challenge, there has been this sentiment out there with some that can be summarized this way. Because the nonprofit sector can't compete with the for-profit sector when it comes to salary and wages, and benefits for that matter, the nonprofit sector will simply need to resign to the fact that they will have to settle for mediocrity. Well, my guest today believes strongly that nonprofits should never have to settle for mediocrity, and I couldn't agree with them more. My guest today is Evan Feinberg. He's the executive director of the Stand Together Foundation, Stand Together is a nonprofit that seeks to help create both strong and safe communities where all people can learn, contribute, and realize their full potential. Enjoy today's show. Well, Evan, it's great to have you on the show today. So we're going to talk all about nonprofits and how they can best respond and lead in light of this, quote, great resignation that is happening really all around us. Um, now, you recently wrote an article in Forbes about this. And two quick things. First of all, as I mentioned before, it's fun to have a fellow Forbes writer on the show. I, too, am a writer contributor to the Forbes Nonprofit Council. So that's been fun, Evan. But also, I really liked a lot of the things you said in this article. And one of the first things I wanted to explore with you is what you refer to early in your article. And you mentioned, and you really argue, essentially, that just because millions of workers are leaving their jobs, and leaving the social sector or nonprofit sector or for profit sector for that matter, some people think, well, the nonprofit sector or social sector just can't compete. And we're basically doomed to mediocrity because the private sector is always going to be able to pay more and raise their wages and benefits higher than the nonprofit sector. And therefore, they'll attract the best people. Now, you would say that is not the case. And so, and I agree with you, but talk practically how can nonprofits best respond to this current reality that we're all facing?
1: Well, Rob, it is so great to be with you. It is such a joy to be on your podcast. I think it's such an important podcast for nonprofit leaders to be able to come together and talk about and think about the the issues facing our industry and how each of us can be more effective. So it is a true joy and pleasure to be with you. So first of all, thank you so much for having me. You bet, Evan. Thank you. Well, I wrote the article because I believe working in the social sector, being a nonprofit leader, is an incredibly fulfilling and rewarding and noble profession and an incredible opportunity. And I do not believe we need to settle for mediocrity. I do not believe that nonprofit organizations, some of the most important organizations in the entire country, doing some of the most important work on behalf of individuals in our country. I do not believe we have to settle for mediocrity at all. And I think it is a myth, this idea that for-profit organizations are just always going to be better financed and be able to pay employees more. Right now, the nonprofit sector is the fourth largest sector in America. There's over 1.5 million nonprofits. It's one of the fastest growing industries. All of the market data shows that nonprofits are raising more money than ever, which means they should be in a good position to be able to increase the salaries and wages of the individuals that are working in nonprofits. But more importantly is this, workers across the country, more so than ever, particularly among young people, but it's workers of every demographic. The research bears this out, that what people really want in a job is to come in each and every day and to know that they're making a difference, to know that the work that they're doing is valuable, that they are contributing. And now you can have that kind of contribution in for-profit companies, no doubt. But we should have a huge competitive advantage in the nonprofit industry to offer meaningful and fulfilling jobs to the people that work in our organizations. So, so I don't think that lets us off the hook. We got to pay them what they're worth also. Uh, but we should have a real competitive advantage to hire and retain the top talent in the industry to do some of this important work.
0: I could not agree with you more. It's so important. To, you know, I've had other guests on the show talking about sometimes, not always, right? I think we're getting much better in the nonprofit sector. But sometimes certain organizations have kind of given the excuse of, oh, we don't have to pay as much. We'll still get good talent. And I just think those days are over. If you want good talent, you're going to have to invest in good leadership, which means you have to invest in their salaries and wages to attract good leaders to lead these organizations. But you also said something really important, I thought. When people are choosing to go to work now, um, it is shifting a little bit. And what I mean by that is people are not just looking at salary, right? Uh, More and more people are looking for the right kind of culture that they want to be a part of. There's actually several articles about this. I've mentioned actually on my show before. And then you actually cite this on your own in this article. I thought that was pretty good out of the American Workforce Index. It clearly shows that employees want a workplace, as you kind of already mentioned, that trusts them, that recognizes their unique talents, respects their insights, and gives them the autonomy to make a difference through their work. So this, let me ask it more of a reflective question, if you will. In general, do you think nonprofits are good at this? Are they better than the for-profit sector? Or... If they are not, how can nonprofits get better at these things at their organization?
1: You know, sadly, uh, so my organization, let me back up for a second. I lead Stand Together Foundation, which is a, a nonprofit organization that essentially goes around the country and finds what we believe to be the very best social entrepreneurs and nonprofit organizations that are breaking the cycle of poverty, bridging divides helping people to realize their full potential. And we find those organizations and we want to equip them to do more. Everything from management training to peer-to-peer networking to financial support to really give them a platform. And, and the idea for us is we want those social entrepreneurs to be ambassadors for transformation in communities around a culture of empowerment. And what do I mean by that? It's, it's both the way that they engage in in their community, empowering the people they serve, to realize their full potential rather than what we see all too often, top-down control, where people treat the people they serve as broken and deficient and in need of outside control. But so it, I, we care about how they show up in their communities, how they empower the people they serve, but also how they show up inside their organizations. It's, it, this is the sad part for me. Nonprofit organizations that are desperately trying to change the way people think about individuals experiencing hardship, things like poverty, and they want to empower those individuals. And then inside their organization, it looks like top-down control, treating their employees as if they're broken and deficient as well. And so a big part of our goal at Stand Together Foundation is to help nonprofit organizations to practice empowerment cultures, not only in society, but in their organization. So, back to your question, I don't believe nonprofits are particularly good at building cultures of empowerment. These organizations that could bring their employees the most fulfilling and interesting and empowering work in the world just have their employees come in every day and comply with how the organization has always done things, right? Come in and, and do our organization's evidence based best practice with compliance, with integrity to the program, do it the way we've always done. Well, if that's what nonprofits show up like, and then they pay their people less to do it, it's no wonder that people are going to leave those organizations in search of a for-profit or other nonprofit job that really trusts them to bring their unique gifts and talents. The American Workforce Index, the study that you described, it really bursts what the author Todd Rose calls a collective illusion. The illusion out there is that most workers, most people really seek fame and fortune, right? If you ask people publicly, what do they think people want out of life? They would say they want more money and they want to be famous and they want to be known. Then you ask people privately and what do they say? They want to be trusted. They want to be valued. They want to be able to use what they're uniquely good at in their daily work. And so I I think that what that American Workforce Index shows is that if nonprofits said uh, to their employees, And these are hopefully insights that your listeners can apply right away. Are you asking your employees each and every day, what else could you do new and different to meet the needs of the people that we serve? What ideas do you have of how we could transform our organization to better meet the needs of the people we serve? And they really did follow up on those unique ideas and gifts and talents of their employees those employees are going to be much more fulfilled. They're going to feel much more trusted, much likely to stay at your organization. But if you've got a founder-led organization and you, you're constantly telling your employees to do it like I told you to do it, do it like we've always done it, you're going to lose your employees. Well, I love
0: what you're saying. And I want to get into this empowered management style. We're going to talk quite a bit about that. One more thought about salary and raises and just uh, where nonprofits invest their money. Uh, You actually point this out in your article, too, that while for-profits can pay people more in general, giving to nonprofits actually has increased the last year and a half, I think, particularly because of COVID, people wanting to give to their local nonprofits and humanitarian organizations. But as money comes in, you lead a nonprofit, right? It's always wonderful, but maybe it's always a challenge. Like, okay, how best should you invest this money when it comes to programs on the one hand and staff on the other? what have you experienced in the last you know, few years? And it sounds like you go around and, and you review a lot of different social entrepreneurs as well as just you know, nonprofits in general. How are the most effective nonprofits best balancing investment in programs, but at the same time investing in their staff? How do you go about that in a healthy way?
1: Yeah well, let me start by saying there's a really pernicious uh, idea in the nonprofit sector that says, well, if I could just raise the money, I could go do all this incredible stuff. And so people wait to make investment until they raise money. And then when they're trying to raise that money, they follow the sort of IRS idea of how much money goes toward over it. So I want to get at both of those sort of pernicious ideas. So starting with the piece of where uh, when money comes in. I always tell the nonprofit leaders we work with, if you've got strategies and ideas that are transforming lives and changing the world, the fundraising's easy, right? The fundraising's easy. So you need to as a leader, be willing to take risks and spend money on those things that you think will be most transformative and then trust your development team and your your, your team your in yourself to be able to go fundraise off of the transformative impact rather than vice versa. So too many nonprofits stay small because they don't dream big. And they just say, oh, if I just had the money, I could do all these big things, but I don't have the money, so I won't do the big things. Um, I think you got to take the risk, right? Uh, use the resource you have, try and, try and fail at big things. The fundraising usually comes second. But this second idea, Rob, that I think gets at what you're describing is that a bunch of nonprofits are beholden to this idea that you can't spend too much of your money on administrative costs, things like staff costs, rather than on your program. And uh, this is a pernicious idea that nonprofits are really just agencies or bureaucracies intended to deploy programmatic services. And if that's what you're doing, then yeah, don't spend a lot of money on overhead. Try to get your overhead real far down and spend all of it on the program that you know works. But here's the problem in the social sector we don't know what to do we don't know what to, what's going to solve problems in our communities we have to take risks and discover and innovate we need a dynamic social economy of of risk and innovation and driving new and better ways of solving problems the same way the for-profit sector has we don't you know there's, there's this idea that we just need to do evidence-based best practices well my team did a review a partner of ours did a review of over 3000 publicly available random control studies on nonprofits. Mm, wow, that's, that's a big study. Just 2%, just 60 of them, showed statistically significant, meaningful, positive results. Only 14, the highest standards of evidence. Now, that's not to say that, that nonprofits aren't always all, all doing incredible work. The fact that we know that we've got evidence-based studies in our hands and we can just deploy the evidence-based studies is what I'm challenging. We have a bunch of nonprofits that are meeting the unique needs and wants and desires of the individuals they serve in all kinds of creative and dynamic ways. And this notion of compliance with evidence-based best practices, it's nonsense to me. So so if we must discover new and better ways of driving value, we're going to do it with investment. We're not going to do it by just pushing out services and getting admin costs down. We're going to do it by bringing in top talent and having that top talent come up with, Creative and new ways of of driving value, and when they do, we'll raise more money, and then we'll be able to spend more money on not only talent but programs. And so the only reason why we're beholden to this IRS standard is because it was it's the only publicly available data for donors to compare nonprofits. They don't have better measures, so they say, "Well, if the only thing I can measure is how much you spend on your overhead, I'll use that to discipline my giving." It's a whole another question, Rob. But we've got some ideas at Sandy other Foundation about better measurement of customer values that we can get away from, uh, uh, you know, squabbling and talking about just how much is spent on overhead and start talking about how much value is being created for people.
0: I like that. Let's explore that. That's a a great concept. And we do need to, I think, dive a little deeper into that for most nonprofits. Well, let's go back to this empowerment-based management. And you already mentioned it a couple of times. So let's go a little deeper. How is this different than other types of management? And in your opinion, why is it so effective?
1: So I, I think, for first of all, we all have a management culture in our organization. Every one of us does. And the question is, is it a consequence of being unintentional, and it's sort of just what generally naturally happens in our organization, and it's you know often personality driven and and whatnot, or are we going to be intentional about a management culture? So that's that's the first question. And the second question is, what kind of management culture do we want? Do we want a management culture that encourages conformity and compliance and doing things the way that they've always been done? Or do we want a management culture that empowers each one of our employees to be an entrepreneur in and of themselves? A a culture where each person taps into their unique gifts and talents, connected to the vision of the organization, and then uses their gifts and talents in a way that will best advance the vision relative to what else they could be working on. That's us as an empowerment culture. We, we train it. We have a, a name for our version of it called principle-based management or market-based management. Some of our partners have, have uh, taken the call on it. The way that we think about this management philosophy is how do you create a shared vision for all employees, right? So we know what we're trying to accomplish, what capabilities we have to accomplish that North Star vision that are unique, right? What are we uniquely positioned to offer to our customers, the people we serve? And then what are the best opportunities to deploy those capabilities to best advance that vision? Then we need to be explicit about the norms and behaviors we expect, right? What are the values that we want? How do we want people to show up every day? Then we need to know our knowledge processes. How are we going to gain and acquire the knowledge, which includes challenge and feedback inside the organization and measures of value outside the organization to make better decisions? How do we divide labor by comparative advantage and have the decision rights to drive effective decision-making across the organization? And then finally, how do we make sure incentives are aligned so that each employee is motivated by what will create the most value for the organization and not something that may get us sideways as an organization? So we consider those five dimensions of empowerment or five dimensions of this management philosophy. And uh, we relentlessly train every, every staff member at Stand Together Foundation, and we try to share it with our nonprofit partners to try to empower each employee and each person in this work to create the most value. We'll be right back.
0: This episode is sponsored by Arts Midwest. They have launched a new podcast called Filling the Well. The Filling the Well podcast has been created to nourish, provoke, and inspire. Hear from creative changemakers as they share their takes on how to shift power, avoid burnout, build community, share resources, and advocate for support. You can visit artsmidwest.org fillingthewell. Again, that's artsmidwest.org fillingthewell. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast. If this is your first time listening to us, I want to make sure you're aware of a whole group of other episodes with fascinating guests that I previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. There you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country and even from different countries, all trying to make their world better. I also want to encourage you to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with others. This will help us get this great content out to more nonprofit leaders just like you. Now, finally, if you want to get my monthly email update that contains more resources in addition to these episodes, it's really easy. Just go to my website at nonprofitleadershippodcast.org and simply type your email address in the top right-hand box, and you'll be added to our monthly email update. And this way, you'll never miss any of the interviews or extra content from this show. And If you have any questions or comments, do not hesitate to email me. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. I like it. Okay. So how widespread is it that nonprofits are actually applying this empowerment-based management style from what you've seen? Is it rare, in other words, for organizations to truly do what you're telling us to do? Is it becoming more common? What have you seen so far in your research going around the country and you're helping these different nonprofits?
1: Yeah. I mean, if we're being honest, the natural way that most of us as human beings solve problems is with control rather than empowerment. Everyone wants to get good things done, but our natural tendency is to say, man, if if my employees just did it the way that I wanted them to, and if uh, people in society just did things the way that I want them to, if I just could control this situation, I can get better outcomes, right? This is sort of the natural state of how people solve problems. So I'm not surprised that when we go into nonprofit organizations and review them, you know, and if I frankly, if I look at my own organization, that often control wins out way more than we'd like it to. But I certainly believe that our better angels are always to empower our employees. They're always to empower ourselves, to empower others. That our natural desire is to see people empowered to realize their full potential and to make their greatest contributions. So I guess the complicated answer is that in every organization, I see the pockets of empowerment and the pockets of control. And what we do is we exist to help folks play to those better angels of empowerment rather than to use control to solve problems. And generally, the, the nonprofits we work with tend to have the, the right instincts, right? They are the folks that are naturally empowering in their work. And then when we offer our frameworks and tools and mental models to be more empowering, they, uh, they gobble them right up. I
0: like that. Okay. Um, now, let's go back to what you mentioned, because I think this is all related. When it comes to now donors investing in a nonprofit and perhaps going back to the IRS question and how much money goes to programs, admin, how much to staff, how much to, quote, overhead, et cetera. You're a big proponent, again, of this. What is the overall impact, the the social value impact, if you want to say it that way? Talk about that more. So what would you argue if you had a donor that wanted to give you $100,000 and they kind of, I don't know, they just come back to you and say, Evan, you've got too high of a percentage of people on your staff in terms of where the money goes. Help me understand why I should give to your organization. What would you say? Well, how would you go about pitching this idea. It's not just about a clean 10%, 90% to 90% or 20 to 80% or whatever percentage you have. It's more about the impact or the social value, I should say, you're making and creating through your nonprofit. So talk about that. How how do you handle those situations?
1: Yeah. Well, the, the first thing that I would say is you have to know which donors you want and which donors you don't want. And what I would say is that you want donors who are true believers that you're creating value for the people that you serve. And so if their first question or if any of their questions is on the percentage of overhead, I'd come back to them and, and, and ask the question or, or share with them the reasons that the allocation of capital that we're making is what creates the most value for our customers. And I use customers loosely. Some people find that term to diminish the importance of the people that we serve. I think customer in the for-profit sector, the customer's king, right? It, it's an elevated position. And so when we're in the nonprofit world and we're trying to solve problems of poverty and social barriers in our communities, if we think of the customer as king, it actually flips the script away from the donor and toward the individual experiencing hardship as the customer. And when we do that, we start thinking of the donor as the investor. We say to that donor, your investment will create more value if it goes toward staff salaries or what have you. If that's the answer be willing to stand up for that principle. Essentially be proud. If you're not proud of the allocation, if you're like, oh yeah, my staff salaries are too high, I'm paying my people too much, or I've got a bloated bureaucracy relative to the value I'm creating for people, well, go change that, right? Your donor might be right. But if you stand by it, right? If you believe that that's the optimal investment to drive transformative change, make them a believer, right? The same way you made those decisions, make them a believer in that. You're going to have some donors who are stuck in stodgy old ways of the percentage itself matters. And you can try to convince them. And if you can't move on, I certainly wouldn't try to rearrange your financials to show less than overhead. I certainly wouldn't try to to belabor the point if they are insistent that this is how they do their philanthropy. We've come across some foundations that say, I only give my money to people who spend under 10% or under 20% on admin. And if, uh, if that's the way that they operate, you're not going to convince them to change. But if you've got a, a donor who's open-minded, you can convince them to make the same decisions you would, right? You're making those decisions. Make them a believer.
0: I like that. Make them a believer. You're right. Because that you've made a decision for a certain reason. You can kind of convince them, you know, here's why I'm doing that. I like that. Okay. Another thing I want to talk to you and get your input on, many nonprofits start with really clear values and a clear mission. Over time though some organizations can be, become either rigid and closed to innovation and change in order just to stay true to you know the mission and holding on to their values and the original mission that started the organization to begin with and yet we all know that if organizations don't innovate and pivot to face the new challenges of the day they can often become too stagnant right and actually start declining because they're not pivoting quick enough they're not nimble enough to really adjust to the new realities How have you done this in your organization and in your experience, or maybe in addition to that, other nonprofits you've seen really do well, how have they sought to continue to innovate and move forward, but at the same time, keep the core values of their organization solid? Give us an example or two of how that's happened either, again, in your own organization or organizations you have reviewed.
1: Yeah, Rob, I'd love to tell you the story of The Phoenix. It's a peer-to-peer addiction recovery effort that I think has been one of the most innovative nonprofits in the country over the last couple of years. Yeah. So The Phoenix uh, was started by a guy named Scott Shroud, and he started as just a guy on his bike, riding his bike with other individuals in recovery, and it helped him to overcome addiction, helped them, and he thought, maybe I'm onto something. Maybe this could be something. So The Phoenix grew into CrossFit gyms eventually, and they they started to open up. CrossFit boxes uh, in multiple cities, Um, not branded CrossFit, similar style as CrossFit, I guess I should say. And so they had three gyms and soon they started to get great results, right? And they could start publishing results, right? We're reducing relapse rates by, you know, they were twice as effective, three times as effective as the best clinical programs in the country. And so there was this moment where the Phoenix, where Scott and the team could have said, we've discovered a program that works. Let's do that. And they could have defined the Phoenix as CrossFit workouts of individuals in recovery together and done things exactly as they were done in those gyms and seen those gyms continue to open up across the country. And no, but that would have been the normal nonprofit track. But instead, Scott focused on their vision. What They had to focus on what would never change about the Phoenix and what could change as many times as it needs to, to create the most possible value for individuals that we wish to serve in recovery? And what does that led to? First, the Phoenix started to say, well, we don't have to open up gyms. We could train others to run Phoenix programming first with staff, and they started opening classes inside other people's gyms. And soon those staff-led groups turned into staff-led climbing and running that didn't even require a gym. Because the secret sauce wasn't a CrossFit workout. It was the recovery community being active together. And then they said, well, it doesn't even really require physical fitness because the magic of the Phoenix is the mutual benefit of your recovery being important to somebody else's recovery in a proud, sober community. So they started doing book clubs and music outings and uh, jam sessions and all kinds of things that didn't even require physical fitness. And then they started to innovate to be like, well, well, do we even need our staff here? Could we train and certify volunteers? And now they've got a technology product where anybody around the country can not only join a Phoenix chapter, but sign up to be a volunteer and get training and certified to lead Phoenix programming. So what's the result of all that? They went from 4,000 people a few years ago to now over 90,000 members of the Phoenix today. Wow. Um, They're on a trajectory to get to a million over the next few years. The reason for that exponential growth is because they always knew the essence of Phoenix and that was never going to change. The principles, the values, what it represented, their secret sauce was never going to change. And and everybody in the organization knows what that is. But then everybody in the organization is incentivized and motivated to innovate better ways to achieve that vision. And so their staff is constantly hungry for new ideas, new ways, new programming, new technology, new everything that can better advance the Phoenix's overall mission. So I tell you that story to say every nonprofit can be like that. Every nonprofit that is successful can say, sure, we're doing something great, but let's not let our success be an enemy to innovation. Like, okay, we're doing this great. What could we do new and better and be the ones to creatively destroy ourselves, to outcompete ourselves? I think every nonprofit can start thinking that way. Well,
0: wow, that's a great example. I want to check out the Phoenix. That sounds fantastic. And what a uh, real testament to get into the mission, like you said, but, but still being willing to be innovative. All right. So back to where we started today, you know, we talked about this great resignation and you've, we've talked a lot about the empowerment management culture that you really would stress for our listeners to implement into their organization. The great resignation still is a reality. I mean, so people are still having to deal with that. I know nonprofits, even the, my community that I interact with, are, they're constantly struggling with finding the right people and then finding that right balance. So that is certainly one of the big challenges facing us. And I think it's going to face us for the next couple of years. But beyond that, what are the other big challenges that you feel like are facing specifically the nonprofit sector?
1: Nonprofit organizations, they are such complex and important organizations. But we have challenges that for-profit organizations, I mean, being a nonprofit leader can be a whole lot harder sometimes than being a a for-profit leader. So one of the challenges being able to to demonstrate to funders and investors all the good work that we're doing, right? And so what do nonprofits do? They try to come up with the best sob story anecdotes. They try to come up with the best you know uh, glossy impact reports that you know sort of trump up what they're doing. They try to come up with random control studies or sort of stats that make it seem like they're creating more value than the next organization down the street. And they spend so much time. So much energy, so much money on catering to proving to donors and funders and bureaucrats that what they're doing is making a difference. And if you ask them, is most of that work is it is it valuable toward the work to the to the work, right? And they said, no, it's all waste. So to me, one of the greatest challenges facing nonprofits is reducing all of that dead weight loss in their organizations. And I'll suggest a way that we can do it as a sector. We have to come up with measures of customer value. Hmm. What do I mean by that? Yeah, explain that. Yeah, We need to start uh, thinking like the design thinking revolution that happened in Silicon Valley, the human-centered design revolution, as it's often called, where you have to diligently get to know the unique and complex needs, wants, and desires of your customer and measure in real time the value that you're creating for them. So that revolution gave rise to things in customer service businesses like net promoter scores, where businesses were trying to say, "Man, I want real time data. Are my customers likely to buy something from me two years in the future because of the experience they had with the product or the store today?" And uh, so, you know, if you're going to buy a new iPhone in two years, it did my experience at the AT&T store when I had a problem with my iPhone? Did is Am I likely to buy an iPhone two years from now because of my experience? Right, sure. And so they came up with questions. They started asking, one to 10, how satisfied are you with the product? And you know, people would say, oh, I'm 10, I'm satisfied. And it turned, turned out that wasn't predictive at all. But then they found hmm. out, well, scale of one to 10, how likely are you to, rec- to recommend this product to a friend? And it turns out that's deeply predictive. That became a score called net promoter score. Hmm. And so they started using net promoter score to measure things like, I'm going to, I subscribe to a number of uh, sports news websites. I, I, I'm a big Steelers, Pirates and Penguins fan. <laughs> Pittsburgh, we won't hold that against you. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so if they want to predict how likely I am to re up my subscription in a year, my net promoter score is a pretty good measure or proxy of my likelihood of doing that. Well, we need measures like this in the social sector, human-centered design questions that ask, for a scale of 1 to 10, how likely am I to recommend the services that I receive to a friend or a family member and, and experiencing similar circumstances? I like that. The original question was, what are the challenges facing the nonprofit sector? And I'd say almost every nonprofit leader will tell you, I got to raise more money.
0: And right. uh, I think yep.
1: the incentives in the sector have to change if we're going to overcome this hurdle.
0: I like your emphasis. I really do. You know, it's interesting this next generation more and more is wanting to know, tell me exactly the impact you've had. What impact are you making with the money I'm investing in you? So more than ever, they're leaning into what you're talking about, creating this value for what the money that comes into your organization and how you're creating value with that. I do think that's going to be in the future. It already is now, but it's going to continue even more so be something that's super important for nonprofits to be able to tell that story well and effectively. Well, again, thank you so much for sharing your insights today. It's been great. Um, So for my listeners, if people want to find out a little bit more about you personally and more about Stand Together, where would you send them?
1: Well, they can go to standtogetherfoundation.org, where they'll find out all about our Catalyst program and the work that we're doing with amazing nonprofits and leaders all across the country. I hope some of your listeners will want to uh, learn more about this empowerment paradigm that we also call it a Believe in People paradigm they'll want to come learn more about it and maybe become a part of some of the programs that we're running. It's a real joy to get to do this work. And we'd love to partner and collaborate with anyone and every one of your listeners that are in this space, whether it's philanthropists and funders or nonprofit leaders or volunteers or just people who want to do good in the world. I think it's an incredible opportunity to think about how we empower people and help each and every person realize their full potential.
0: That's great. Well, sounds good. Well, again, Evan, thanks so much for taking time to be on the show. And thanks for all you're doing to help out the nonprofit sector.